Hello, you are very welcome to the Inside Our Schools podcast, a podcast where we put all the current issues around teaching in Irish secondary schools under the microscope. I'm your host, Andrew Phelan. Tonight we go inside our schools and take a look at the massive shift in educational policy and that is to move education from a knowledge subject based curriculum to an outcomes skill based model. And we put the rationale given for such changes under the microscope and try to tease out what might be the real reasons behind this major shift in education and what are the consequences of it. Joining us for that discussion tonight are Geraldine Mooney-Simmy, a Senior Lecturer and Deputy Head of School of Education in the University of Limerick, Kate Barry, an English Subject Representative and a well-known blogger and writer on educational issues, and finally Mark Walsh, who is an Educational Policy Critic and a Subject Rep for Spanish and Computer Science. And a quick reminder that all our guests tonight are speaking in a personal capacity. So thanks everybody for for coming along to the Inside Our, Our Schools podcast. This particular episode is one that I've been wanting to do for a while. It's becoming very apparent, really, that shift uh, from knowledge based curriculum that we've always had, where we have our subjects, and as always based around learning the knowledge of those subjects and learning, you know, the the details within each subject, like learning a lot about geography, learning about history, learning about Spanish, all the different subjects. Uh, and, and now we can see this shift to more of an outcomes or, or as people would call it, a skills based education system. And, and that started really with the junior cycle. But we, we can kind of see the writing in, on the wall, really, for its intention is to move that towards the leaving cert. And you can see it not only from what the department says, but you can see politicians now even in, in the doll making speeches, talking about, uh, you know, facts and knowledge are not really what's needed you need critical thinking skills you need you know all these different skills and outcomes that they're looking for uh, from our education system and i suppose that got me to doing a bit of reading um, and looking around uh, and quickly noticing that even internationally now you can see the critics saying that that's actually an old school thought Uh, it's phrased i suppose as something new and modern and for the first 21st century but a lot of the people are proponents, I suppose, uh, and academics who, who propose these methods, uh, these skills and outcomes-based methods, they were all in the early 1900s uh, when very little was known about how our brain learns and so on. And it seems now that they've rebranded them. Uh, for what purposes? Maybe we can get into that tonight. Um, what purposes they, this, this shift seems to be, to be happening. Um, but happening it is. And there is very few people pointing this out uh, and actually i've got the people in ireland who i've noticed point this out uh, together on this podcast journey i've noticed you point this out for a number of years you were at the ASTA convention in 2017 talking about this mark you've been you've been talking uh, about this again at, at union meetings as has kate heard kate loads of times talking about the english specifications and all the the stuff that goes with that and the shift towards uh, this outcomes-based model so it is happening. It is here. Uh, I suppose the purpose of this podcast is really is to explain to people, teachers and the general public, what is, what are we talking about? What is this shift from knowledge-based uh, curriculum to a skills or an outcomes-based curriculum? And, and what are the effects that we may see with that? So, Geraldine, you're the, the, the academic here. You're the one who is 
put in countless years studying this stuff. Um, so what kind of insights can you give us on it uh, in terms of the research that has been done, research you've done yourself? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think, uh, Andrew, for your listeners, if people after the podcast listening to it want to connect with me, it's geraldine.mooney.simi at ul.ie. Mm. And I'll be very delighted to get back to anybody to further the conversation. As you said, we're just going to tip on this tonight. Uh, what is the big paradigm shift, if you like, happening in education in the world at the moment, never mind Ireland. And uh, I study this because my own research is always on policy change. And I work with this with my PhD students and with all of my research, trying to figure out what's actually happening. And I guess um, without laboring it, the main players in the world, the OECD, the World Bank, all of these people that have a very much a vested interest in terms of the economy have shaped education as a marketplace because they see it as a lucrative money money business. And what has happened is that with this neoliberalism that has been growing all over the world rapidly and has just started to morph into education in Ireland in the last 10 years, maybe since our financial crash in particular, is that education is not seen, if you like, on a platform of the public sphere for the greater good of humanity, uh, for better social democracy, for a better society. It's actually seen as operating on this thing called a marketplace. So the seduction of parents and students is done by saying, you know, you'll have choice and you'll have autonomy and you'll have all the lovely freedoms that we're all seduced by. We all want that, all want freedoms and we all want all of that. And teachers are seduced by it as well. They think, oh my goodness, I'll have a great career and I'll do more of this and I'll become more of all that. So with an outcomes-based education, there's a very big seduction of everybody. But in fact, all that's really happening, according to Professor Kathleen Lynch, in UCD, Professor Stephen Ball in, 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 in London, uh, Professor Sylvia Edling in Sweden, and all the other great researchers around the world. What's actually happening is that we're being invited to be creative in a marketplace. And that makes us a commodity. And when we're creative in a marketplace, um, we actually start suffering from narcissistic disorder and anxiety. And, and we need the system then to start giving us well-being classes and mental health issues because we no longer have real authentic relationships with our teachers or with anybody. We're just trying to do makeovers of ourselves all the time to be commodities. So that's the sad thing about education, if it is falling into that big shift, which is marketization. So... Um, all the changes that are in the junior cycle and in all of secondary schooling, they all bear the hallmarks of this neoliberal thinking. And as I said, you need just to look and see, are we being invited, I suppose, to be commodities? And I suppose that going alongside of that is the fact that this system is a turn back to power and privilege because who will succeed in that system will be education for a private good. Well, that will always be the wealthy. They will always be the succeeders. So it's the reproduction of the wealthy. So it continues massive inequality and everything. That's if it is 
a marketplace. So I've I've just hopefully kicked that out as what's happening there. Can I, can I come in there, Andrew? Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, because uh, I, I, I was looking at some of this myself and it ties in exactly with what Geraldine has said. And, um, you know, what's the, what's the motivation of policymakers in, in a lot of this? And uh, Gert Biesta, which people may be familiar with, he's, uh, um, he's a professor in Maynooth, actually, at the moment, professor of education in Maynooth. Uh, he's worked in different places like Holland and in Scotland as well. But he he argues what policymakers and politicians and organisations like the OECD, what they're increasingly demanding and what they want is for education to be strong and secure and predictable and, and risk-free at all levels, right? they want it to be like a secure production process yes. like like a like a mechanical production process input process output and uh, what he says is um this is why the task of schooling is more and more being constructed as the effective production of predefined learning outcomes in a small number of subjects or with regard to a limited set of identities such as that of the good citizen or the effective lifelong learner so to me, that is a very impoverished vision of for the education system, for students. So you're talking about, just to repeat it, the, the effective production of predefined learning outcomes in a small number of subjects. So you know the way typically the OECD focus on um, English, uh, science and maths, those three uh, areas, generally speaking. And all, But also what's important as well is that there's a lot of talk about values and attitudes and the development of student attitudes. And it's almost like a form of social engineering because what they want is to develop the identity of students as like the good citizen or the effective lifelong learner. And these are, again, are very limited identities. And uh, what you find is missing then is the idea of education as looking at the bigger picture, looking at the wider world, what sort of knowledge and, uh, do students need to be able to think of the, to be able to consider the wider world, to be able to criticize, challenge, debate, take part in, you know, become an active, a genuinely active citizen that, that knows things about the world rather than just this idea, this narrow idea of a kind of a good citizen and, you know, kind of like doing their charity work and so on. It, so, so that's part of the, the problem. And it, it, I think it, it relates in, back into what Geraldine was saying there is that it's about the marketplace. And I always think about it as what they want now is essentially they want a training system. They want us to be training students for the workplace. And all of the skills that they want are typically those demanded by employers, the right attitude, literacy and numeracy skills, teamwork, how to get on with people, all this kind of stuff. And it's as if that the question, we'll probably come to it later, it's as if the question of knowledge knowing being an educated citizen knowing about the wider world it's as if that has been as hugely diminished uh, significance now it's all really about economic competitiveness how do we fit our students for the so-called 21st century and, and all of this kind of thing which is really again as i say an impoverished vision it, it is out there now as something to be seen as progressive this outcomes-based education it doesn't suit the working classes, this learning knowledge kind of stuff, you know, and, and this kind of thing. There's a guy called Richard Burlock. He's a professor in, in the University of Notre Dame, Australia, and he done a great paper. Um, it's called Outcomes-Based Education and the Death of Knowledge. But within that, he, he zones in on that exact point that you made, that 
Brauchen's-based education is for, as he puts it, the masses, whereas the elite in the private colleges and that, they are going to continue with their subject-based learning, with their, their knowledge-based learning uh, and so on. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the rest of the people are going to be kept in their place with this outcomes-based knowledge. And, and that's the way he looks at it. And this is, he's not the only academic saying this kind of stuff. So for people listening in, I would consider myself very progressive. I'm sure Mark, sure the rest of us here do. It's, it's not that we are trying to keep an elitist knowledge-based system in place. In fact, it's quite the opposite, you know. And Mark, just to touch on, on your point about the narrow focus, and from a practical sense, I can see that shift that you're talking about in terms of if you look at our subjects now and you look at our, our CBAs, for example, that are brought in in all the junior cycle subjects, there's very little knowledge of the subject needed to complete those CBAs. And in fact, all the CBAs are morphing into one, you know, it's do an interview with your student about this. How did they evaluate this? How did they evaluate that with no reference or mention of the knowledge of the subject? And they all just seem to be morphing into one big giant project with these skills. And I see it in PE most recently, they're developing a new PE curriculum. And one of the, the CBAs initially was um, host an event or create an event, you know, uh, well, you know, a physical, obviously PE event, but, no knowledge needed uh, about your body, no knowledge in, in terms of physical literacy needed, just organizing an event was something that they wanted to assess for physical education, for PE. You know, so we can see there, this gentle shift, I suppose, or some people would call it a sudden shift, uh, away from, from knowledge. Getting, you don't really need knowledge to complete these courses anymore. We're looking at these kind of skills, uh, stuff yeah. that, as you said, Mark, yeah. are probably needed for the workforce. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a few further ideas I'd have on that, but I'd love to hear Kate's thoughts on yeah. it. Yeah, um, yeah I, was just, I was thinking, I think I have the same things here as well, in particular about the word progressive, which has come up. And I think that is the main, I think, misunderstanding amongst, I was going to say people who don't work in education, but sometimes I think people within education as well, is that the word progressive in education has really been co-opted and means something quite different than you might think it means and and often people who would describe themselves as progressive politically it doesn't exactly match up with what's progressive in education in that it it has been um kind of means something it's it, it doesn't mean what it what what you think it means and that there is I, I don't want to use the word disconnect because I, I just hate that word because it's a it's a verb and it's not a noun and I'm supposed to be an English teacher. <laughs> there, there, is, there, there are like several contradictions yes. um, when we look at Irish education today, and the biggest one of these is is that we have a reform in junior cycle reform that we all um, know. Some of us hope, some of us fear, and uh, will soon be replicated in senior cycle. And, and this is between the, the something that, that sounds very progressive, that, that sounds as if it's invested in equality, that it's focused on students, that it's focused on, on children and their needs, that it's socially progressive. And, and yet behind that, there is, as Geraldine says, there is a very hard neoliberal kind of thinking that goes on behind that. And that even when you look at the websites and the documentation that's out around Junior Cycle, it's it's all very, you know, there's a lot of comic sans, 
there's a lot of primary colours, there's lots of lovely photos of really happy, smiling children. And, and yet there's, there really is nothing there, but, or very little there, but what these children are, are learning. And that when you kind of excavate down to the layers, uh, what you get to is, is the, that it's all about capacities, competencies, mm-hmm. and it's about a kind of, um, as Sterling said, a market where our children are the product, that they are the, um, you know, we're, we're going to produce these workers who are going to have the right competencies, they're going to have the right capacities, they're able to be going able to work in groups, they're going to be able to give presentations, which I think is quite naive, I, I think, in, in terms of what people think that people who don't work in education do in their jobs all day. I mean, it's all seems to be PowerPoint and interviewing people. That yes. uh, And that it does come back a lot, I think, to, to PISA. And, you know, there's nothing, I'm nothing against PISA itself, but that we forget that it's an instrument. And I think that the policymakers give PISA and the OECD far too much credence. Um, Biesta and Priestley, I know, have said that, you know, we've forgotten that it's not just an instrument, that it's now, um, you know, getting good results in PISA is now seen as a definition of what a good education is. Mm, And the problem with PISA is that it is designed because it's designed to be sat by 15 year olds in lots of different countries in lots of different systems it is not linked to the curriculum and yeah, I, I even think if I can butt in and say yeah. to you that even uh, PISA results Lionel Lim and Singapore and others have written to show that some of the countries that are doing really well on these league tables are actually putting in their top schools uh, they don't put in their ordinary schools. They have all these stratified systems. So if it becomes like a Eurovision song contest or a world global song contest we're engaged in, where the Irish government on behalf of the taxpayer is pays has to pay maybe a quarter of a million euros for some of these tests for us to compare ourselves internationally, um, that countries fabricate in many ways, I'm sure how they do this. So we're not comparing like with like. Comparative studies between countries are very difficult to do. Now, I don't have any problem with us having results or testing or grading or even a few outcomes. We know we are going to have a schooling system that's going to expect something of us. But I do think uh, Mark is right that we're going to be talking about having a very impoverished system if that's going to be the only focus all the time, then we're doing kind of social engineering. Of, we're trying to create this ideal student, a worker citizen, who's not a person in their own right at all, who's actually not a subject in their own right. Gert Biesta writes a lot about this. I've written philosophy papers myself in this area, that the, the uh, what have you got to learn through to being educated is to become a person in your own right as well as a person who's, you know, part of society. But unless you learn how to become a person in your own right, in the first instance, you're just going to be a follower of fashion. Mm. So if these young people are being uh, educated to be obedient, and it strikes me to be tightly obedient of power, um, they'll be just functionaries. Mm. They won't be able to argue the difference. They won't be able to have any critical argumentation, open up a critical debate, 
to agree to, what's the word? To agree to disagree with respect. And we don't have that as a very strong skill in Ireland. We don't open many critical debates about anything in Ireland. Traditionally, because of our colonized past, we've actually been kind of quietly ourselves as a nation. We kind of, you know, jump from one, we, something comes in, we jump pragmatically and try and get a solution to it. We don't do philosophical debate and opening it out and thinking about it and throwing it up in the air and going in deep under it and being able to disagree with each other with respect. So we get our policymakers seducing us, telling us that everything is going to be, you know, nice skills and lots of choices for the children and everything. But the question I would ask the policymakers is, will they come out and tell us, are they actually educating into a marketplace or are we educating into a public forum of a democratic society? Because they are two different places. Are yeah. we going into the public square uh, where we're uh, public intellectuals and cultural critics trying to make a better world and a more just global world together and a sustainable development in Ireland and elsewhere? Or are we in a market where we're just focused on educating the individual as a self-regulated learner? But you see, COVID has taught us that we're actually not just hero individuals that we actually are dependent and interdependent with others. We're in a social space. We need one another. So our schooling system has got to educate us to be interdependent and dependent as well as independent. Yeah. So I don't see that in any of the policies in Ireland. I don't see any desire to go any place other than educating for a competitive individual a kind of a Darwinian individual, mm. a kind of a dog-eat-dog. Dog. There's, mm. there's a great paper written by Nixon and others that talks about, well, if you, if you educate somebody to just be a hero entrepreneur, there's a danger you're actually going to develop somebody with narcissistic tendencies mm. who's going to be all the time thinking of themselves and how they're going to get one up on everybody else. So they aren't going to forum a decent society for anybody. So we, we seem I, to have lost that yeah, part. I, I, I find it funny as well, Geraldine, that, you know, we're here now and we are the ones arguing um, against a system that uh, is saying that, oh, we need to develop skills like critical thinking. But yes, we're the ones being critical about it. We're the ones putting it under a microscope and looking at it. The only, uh, developing the only those problem, Andrew, skills. is that when, when the policymakers say critical thinking, they're not talking about no. critical consciousness and social justice. No. They're talking about uh, critical thinking inside Bloom's taxonomy, yes. higher order thinking. Yes. They're not talking about an uneasy social conscience about society. Yes. Uh, Lionel Lim has a paper done showing that critical thinking has two different functions. One is a political consciousness and the other one is a scientific one. And Ireland is only talking about the scientific instrumental one. And if people wanted practical evidence of that, um, and, you know, say, well, what are you talking about? You know, that's not the intention of the government or the department or, or whatever. 
Um, the practical evidence is that they were trying to merge two subjects, history and geography, into one kind of blended subject. Then they were trying to get rid of history or not make, make it not compulsory on the system until there was a big fight back. And now, and now they've, they've managed to, to reinstate it. But the question is, for how long? But to answer your question, the reasoning behind that when you can see that, you know, geography teaches us about the world we live in, it teaches about global warming, it teaches about how the world functions, it teaches about first world, second world, it teaches about all of the, the economics, I suppose, of the world and how it operates, and history teaches about stuff from the past, so, you know, would they be, if, if they don't know their history, they might not be able to spot different dangerous political movements that are, that are coming through, uh, they, you know, for example, Trump in America, uh, you know, some of the stuff that he said, like, you know, not believing in, in, in global warming and, and all the rest of this. Well, in America, they've had this outcomes based education for years. So maybe the, the knowledge depth around global warming and stuff is not there or not taught in, in secondary school. So you can see that the intention is absolutely there. Mark, you want to come in? I can see you looking and shouting at me there. <laughs> yeah, no, just to take up a couple of points there. Um, I think. I think the, the point about critical thinking is really well made because a lot of the time critical thinking these days is, you know, how to spot fake news and here's a checklist and you just tick it off and you go, all right, mm -hmm. it's fake news, right? I mean, it's such a superficial understanding of, like, if you want to understand why Trump went to North Korea, for example, and or why there's a battle between America and China at the moment or whatever, you know, there's, there's, you need your, you need knowledge of history, you need knowledge of geopolitics, you need a whole knowledge base that you can, uh, that you can assess current events on the basis of. It's not simply just a case of, you know, oh, I pull out my, 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 my checklist and go, oh yeah, that's true, that's not true. I mean, it's a totally superficial um, knowledge or way of looking at, at how to identify what's really happening in the world critical thinking whatever and um, another thing i wanted to just mention as well in that connection is, is again going back to this vision of the learner biesta talks about this idea of a robot vacuum cleaner right now if you think think of a robot vacuum cleaner right you program it right and it goes around your your sitting room with some some something of autonomy about it right but it's always autonomy within a fixed room and when they talk about autonomy and students having autonomy and autonomy within the curriculum and whatever autonomy within the world in general, that's the kind of autonomy they're talking about. It's a very narrow vision of autonomy set within the current restrictions of the market and society and so on. And it, it, people could be seemingly very dynamic within that, but they're never breaking beyond the, the walls of the room. They're never breaking out into the wider society. They're never opening up the conversation challenging the way things are in society and so on so when they when they talk about critical thinking and when they talk about autonomy and all of these very positive sounding and as kate mentioned progressive sounding uh ideas you have to look at what they really mean you know and i think that captures it really well robot vacuum cleaners you know and uh this is part of the the overall problem and you know even even knowledgeable people like you hear saying you know with trump the critical thinking is, is ever more necessary. And yet, the big supporter of the likes of the junior cycle, which, you know, it goes towards the superficial of, you know, the tick box approach to critical thinking rather than understanding how does, how does, how does a character like Trump arise out of political and social conditions and so on. So, you know, there's, there's, and what do you need for that? You need a very, you need a knowledge-based curriculum. And knowledge, again, we don't just mean 
static content. We mean knowledge and skills as part of it's, it's the two sides of the same yeah. coin. I think I, I, I think I would say that there's a lot in the junior cycle that none of I think most of what we would see in the junior cycle in the in, you know, in the list of skills and everything, it would be very hard to argue hmm. uh, kind of against those you know, the students being creative and having well-being and caring for themselves and becoming self-regulated and all of those things are wonderful. But the thing, the problem with education is what's missing from the picture now. And, and as, as you've been all saying, yeah, I, I, is... I think if I can come in there, that, that the, yeah. really thing, the, the thing that's really missing is knowledge. And, yeah. and a, a great book um, that I really recommend every teacher to, to read or you know, anybody interested in education is Daniel Willingham's Why Don't Students Like School? And, you know, it's not a policy book or, and it's, it's not, it's not, um, you know, Daniel Willingham, he's a highly respected education psychologist and cognitive scientist, but the book is written really for a lay audience. And in it, he kind of explains about critical thinking. And as you know, thinking, it's, it's a transient verb. You, you have to think about something. You can't critically think in a vacuum. And a great example is sport that you can, you know, for example, I, I couldn't critically analyze any, any game of any kind of sport, but imagine if you know a lot about hurling and you're able to watch a match and give a great critique of, of the playing. But then imagine if you go and you're sent to watch the cricket and you know nothing about cricket or you're sent out to watch American football and you know nothing about it, then your ability to give a critique yes. is, is very much in, inhibited by your lack of knowledge. I think it would agree with Geraldine as well that there is really a case for learning outcomes there somewhere that we do want to have broad statements about you know, the general capabilities that we you know, aspire that students will leave school or that will leave a certain stage of their schooling with. But the problem then is that when this is all that there is. So if you look at the junior cycle framework, you have like the key skills yeah. and then you have statements of learning, which with the statements of learning, which I think is a good place to have the kind of learning outcome kind of language. But then when you go down into the subject specifications, the specification is a, is a misnomer because mm. there again, you get very, very, very vague yes. learning outcomes. Um, yes. and, a, and a problem with that, I mean, from a social justice point of view, is that then it very much depends on which school you go to and, and very much depends on how that curriculum is enacted and imagined at a local level, because it's quite easy to, to tick off all those um, vague learning outcomes. Um, so say, for example, you could say that to analyze a text, for example, mm -hmm. and you could analyze a pop song, or if you're in another school, they you might be analyzing something like Ozymandias and thinking thinking about power and thinking about satire and and recognizing that you know a lot of the things that we might think of as as modern 21st century concerns have actually been around for a long time. Yes, I, I think I think Kate, what you're saying there is really, really very important because I think um as well as knowledge maybe been missing. I think really the handle on I, I'm getting from Paolo Freire's work is particularly is the theory is gone from the menu. We're not asking teachers to grapple anymore with theory and practice. They're no longer being asked to do a praxis 
to have grappling with theory and practice. So they're being told, here's research from outside. You be, you know, you can do all this work with research. So you just put your hand on research that's given to you from others, but you're not grappling with theory and practice yourself. So like Mark said, with the vacuum cleaner, you're actually just doing what they call intelligent adaptability all the time. So you're being almost programmed like a functionary where you're being given the research and you're asked to give these deliverables from the child and the young person. Uh, but you're not a thinking teacher at all. You're not asking why you're doing anything. As Kate says, you're not critiquing it. Uh, as Mark would say, and Andrew would say, you're not even connecting with the social justice aspect of it. So you're doing this safe risk managed thing. So Biesta does write a lot now about, is that all there is? Can you just say the teaching is just skills, competences, knowledge and attitudes and values, and that's it. And we've all described it and we've a lid on the box and we are working inside a predetermined space where there's no openness at all. And we've it all narrowly defined. And if I would just, if you would bear with me to give one example, uh, in the 1920s, when fascism was growing all over Europe and particularly in Germany, Martin Buber wrote an English book called I and Thou. And he, he did the philosophy of relationship. And he said, all relationships have two aspects, I, it, and I, thou. So if I'm in relationship with you and I have an I, it, it the relationship is an I, it, I'm wanting something from you and you're wanting something from me, just like the exchange of a commodity. But if I'm relaxing with you as a friend in an I-thou relationship, I don't have an agenda. It's a, it's, it's a higher level. It's a higher level entirely. We could go on for a whole program on it. And what Buber says is that for education to be healthy, the teacher must come to the child with recognition of that young person as a young person in their own right, not with a constant barrage of agenda, trying to squeeze an I-it set of results out of the child. Do, am I making any sense? No, you are absolutely, yes. I think I, I think just if I could come in there and to pick up on, on, on Geraldine's point there as well. Yeah, about, go on, Mark, yeah. About the, the sort of confining, again, I keep coming back to this idea of, of, of teachers, students and teachers being confined. And so if you look at this whole idea of learning outcomes and how it's supposed to be broken down, like how how is this supposed to be practically broken down into the classroom? And the NCSA actually have some interesting booklets that they've that they've designed for workshops and things like that, presumably staff meeting workshops and things like that, right? And it starts off with learning outcomes, right? And then it develops into learning intentions, which is what the teacher is supposed to share with the students. Then you're supposed to organize the learning activities, and then you have to develop these success criteria, and that leads on to feedback, right? Now, all of that is what, what, again, I keep going back to Biesta, but he calls it a scripted teaching, right? In other words, you start with the learning outcomes, learning intentions, success criteria, and there's a whole formula of how you're supposed to teach now, of you follow these steps. And 
like even the the word success criteria, I just I just kind of get the shivers when I when I hear it. It's just, and it's not just because it's a buzzword. It's just because the clinical and mechanical and uh, those aspects to it, it just offends me. As as I see myself as a professional, it just offends me uh, that they that they want to try and manage my practice. Now, in that way, in that clinical or mechanical way, and all of this comes from uh, a guy called John Hattie who is famous for developing these um, what they call effect sizes of different quote interventions into the classroom and into schools and like he has effect sizes for all the different things you could do from reducing class sizes to giving feedback and so on and anything above 0.4 is considered to have a positive effect size right and he says uh, feedback and training other teachers and various different things have, have high effect sizes interesting enough having smaller class sizes doesn't have much of an impact according to him right with these with these studies but there's a book called visible teachers for visible learning for teachers and effectively and i'm not promoting it but like if people want to know where a lot of this terminology and uh mechanical outlook is coming from uh, it's coming from the likes of john hattie who did all these surveys of meta-analysis and basically said look i've looked at all of the research from all over the world and basically I've narrowed it down to these are the things that are effective and these are the things that are not. And schools need to do the things that are effective and if they do, that's fine. Now it totally obscures, and he even admits himself, it doesn't deal with the wider social things yeah, outside I think schools. I think a clever way to deal with him because he's a psychologist is to say that he's giving us facts that are valuable from the behavioral side. But we also need the philosophers, the historians, the sociologists to give us the full picture so he's given us part of the picture. So maybe a cleverer way of maybe dealing with all of the, the facts coming in from the psychology of behaviour is to say, yeah, thanks, they're great. But actually, education sits on a multidisciplinary field. So what is the philosophy people telling us? And th there's a lot of people, a lot of philosophers of education raising red flags at the moment, and nobody's listening to them because they're not measuring anybody and sociologists critical sociologists and researchers policy researchers like myself around the world nobody's listening to what we're saying because we're not measuring anybody and we're, what's only what can be counted is kind of counting at the moment so i think the way to deal with some of the psychology stuff coming through is to say you know there's some value in what he's giving us but it's surely not the whole picture. And if we can think we can measure everyone in the small way, we have, we have really let down our country and our society and our young people and the next generation of our young people. So that's why we're here tonight, I think having this podcast and sharing our thoughts and sharing our thoughts with anyone that will listen to us. What is the purpose of education in Ireland now? after COVID, isn't it a great chance for us to start a critical debate on what do we want for our young people? And certainly um, knowledge and values and skills and attitudes all sound great to me, but if there's no grappling with theory and there's no thinking about a why, and as Kate says, if there's no one able to critique anything, well, aren't we in a bit of trouble then? Yeah, I just wanted to come in on, on a couple of the points that were made. It's this idea of the straitjacket, or Mark, as you call it, the computer vacuum in the room. But you, you, you can see, like, they talk about autonomy. And of course, this is a, the document from the Department of Advancing School Autonomy and 
how what it really means is pushing the responsibility back on individual schools and, and having to deal with all these issues rather than the Department of Education. That's the, the true meaning, I suppose, of of uh, advancing school autonomy. But again, it's marketed. I think marketing is the word here that it's it's marketed as something great. Um, same for teachers. They say there's teacher autonomy now, you know, so you, you can you can take a, a script that's, you know, that's not on the English paper. Let's say in, in times past, there would be certain scripts that beyond you can probably work with something different or you can look at something here. But that's piecemeal stuff. It's here and there. But what is very prescriptive now is the manner in which we teach. And it's you literally are ticking boxes. Uh, you can't, you know, let's say, for example, I wanted to stand up the top of the, the room and give a lecture like a comedian right just talking to the class and having a, a bit of banter with them trying to get the knowledge in talking around about so that would be completely criticized by uh, anybody coming in from an inspection because it's, you're talking too much you're you know you're uh, but yet the whole class could be engaged and listening and, and and having fun but that's i'm not allowed to do that now that's that's just gone uh, you know and of course i wouldn't do that every single class but i'm just saying that option for me is gone where is in the past you had an exam let's say at the end of sixth year or, or in third year and it was completely up to you in reality how you taught the students but now that autonomy is gone and it's very prescriptive of how, how we teach and it's not just there, it's in policy making uh, as well. And another practical right. example I think, of that. I think, Andrew, if I come in and say yeah. to you, look at, we're not going to, we're not going to win any arguments if we say the teachers can be inside the class doing whatever they like. No. So I think the smart way for us to be able to put this argument is to say that we're not, teachers are, are always willing to move with the times and move and change. And mm. if, if change is needed, teachers are very, very willing to do the changing. Mm -hmm. But what, what's concerning us is the direction of the change. I think that's what I'm hearing mm -hmm. in the heart of the talk tonight. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not that all knowledge in the past was great and that all teaching was mm -hmm. marvellous. It's not all that. I think it's the, the key for us is to say that we need critical debate about the directions mm -hmm. we're taking in education. And the danger with it being so clinical and so manufactured and so uh, the wrong use of a scientific approach as well. Mm. I'm, I come from a science background and I'm you know, very, very interested in science, but unless the science is in conversation with philosophy and with the arts and with critical thinking and criticality, mm. well, we're in trouble then because our, as teachers, we need all those knowledges mm. to be able to work with young people. Yeah, no, I agree. No, I absolutely agree. The point I was kind of trying to make was like teachers could study their own theory of, yeah. of how to teach in a cool. classroom and what best works and what this yeah. was. Now we don't really get to do that. It's just this prescriptive. Dear, here's how you of teach. Course. Tick the box. That, that's the kind of the point I was trying to make. Yeah, you no, know, it was up to teachers. Uh, but the other point then about being, you know, in terms of policy development, like I've been to some of these subject development meetings and it's like what you said, Mark, the way I, I would describe it like an alleyway, you know. So we're given here's this frame of a curriculum uh, here we're going to develop this new part of the, the subject here and you look at oh yeah can i look over that wall no you can't you just have to keep walking straight between these two walls and you can't suggest anything that's outside these walls and then they would say to you oh wasn't that a really good debate we had there around the cba and i'm glad to see the enthusiasm and you can't but it's only enthusiasm around it because I can't look over the wall. I have to look straight at it, you know, uh, and that's the kind of idea. And well, if you course, take joy, if you take joy out of the classroom yes. and you take the rapport and the good relationship that we must have with our students and seeing them as persons and being able to have joy with them. Mm. If you take that non-instrumental 
aspect away from teaching, you're going mm -hmm. to end up with mental health problems with the young people. Mm -hmm. uh, if their teacher is only looking at them to gather data and gather outcomes and look at them as if they're a medical problem and try and fix them as if they're a medical problem, we are going to end up with worse, a worse mental health issue. And at the moment, believe it or believe it not, Ireland is fourth highest in Europe with mental health issues with young people. And so if you take joy away from teaching and you take recognition and care of the young person, the affective part that all teachers, you, every one of you know what it is to hold the affectivity of a school uh, in place, because we do that every day, caring for the young people in our care. Um, if that is stripped away and we start looking at trying to you know, measure and count and we go at it ourselves as robot vacuum cleaners, bumping into the furniture, meaning the children trying to get outcomes out of them. Oh, we're, we're going to have um, the, the relative narrow. mental health issues will mm. scoot right high. And, and the other point I wanted to pick up on there was, was the point that Kate made about the the sports and the sports is a great analogy. And I've often said that, you know, in terms of critical thinking, I'm, I'm a, I'm strength and conditioning. That's, that's where I've done my master's in strength and conditioning. So if I go along to a strength and conditioning forum or a convention or something, and I'm listening to somebody standing, telling me something around S and C, let's say, um, I can say, mm, I don't really agree with him there or absolutely. He's talking perfect sense. I like that idea. And, and you move on or, or you jot something down and you research it further yourself. Now, if I was to go to an engineering convention, and somebody was standing up there, they may as well be talking a different language that I don't understand because I wouldn't have a clue how to critically analyze anything anybody is saying. And so the idea that, you know, you, you, you can just drop knowledge and still work on, on critical thinking is absolutely ridiculous. And, and an example I'll give you, and, and this idea that you can just, sure, why do you need to do that? Let's say when you go to the to these engineering conference, can't you just Google it, you know, and you can just look it up? I mean, I do that with my students all the time. So I, I teach my fifth year's healthy living where we, we kind of look at how to work out in a gym and what, what kind of stuff to do. Because when they go into gyms, of course, when they're 16 now, when they go out, I'd like them to know how to use a gym because there's an awful lot of rubbish out there. But the experiment we do at the start is I get them to go off and to research it themselves on the internet. And they have to come up with this program that they're going to do themselves and why do they want to do this program and so on. And they have to bring it back into class and we look at it. 70% of them are completely wrong, uh, completely wrong because they had no background, no knowledge in it, no nothing. So they just went on the internet, got what they saw some guy or girl saying, thought that that was really good, looked well, they know what they're saying, and they put it down on their program and brought it back in, and it was completely wrong. Right, uh, you're and right. Now, and now if, if I yeah. was to, then what we do is, I would tell them a little bit, well, here's why that's wrong, and, and we do up a kind of a, a thing themselves, yeah. send them back off to do it again, uh, and then they come back in, and it's not based on what I've said, they go back and research it again. But now with the added knowledge in their head, they go back and research it again. And then they can look at what this guy is saying and go, no, I don't. I, he's actually talking rubbish. And they Google another guy with his program. Oh, I like what he's saying yes. there. That kind of relates to what, what Mr. Phelan was telling me. Uh, and then they can so they can critically analyze stuff with the knowledge there. But this idea that knowledge and knowledge is being removed. And as I said, the example I gave is PE, the new PE course. They didn't mention the words physical literacy anywhere. In the entire documents, about, our knowledge, you know. Yeah, what we're talking about is that teaching is complex. Yes. And it does require lots of knowledges. Mm. And uh, we know that teachers uh, have to, you know, engage 
with their teaching with lots of knowledges, including theory, subject knowledge, professional knowledge, a whole lot of knowledge, including critical thinking knowledge mm. that we're talking about as a moral and political kind of knowledge. Mm. So um, when teaching is reduced to just simply a hop, skip and jump, we're in trouble. Yes, and, yes. you know, I'm seeing the global, the global insights study from the OECD has frightened me in the last year as I've studied it. It has just reduced teaching down to being just a hop, skip and jump, a bit of instruction. In fact, what it, it appears like the teacher is just being asked to be an instructional manager and make everybody obedient. And when that's done, it seems that that's it. That's all that's required. So I was at a conference a few, I was at the research ed conference in 2013. It's the first one I was at and I heard Dylan William speaking at it. And it's actually on YouTube if somebody wants to look it up that, and in it he says that the teachers were like intellectual navvies that were told where to dig, but never, it's never discussed with us or we're not told why. And it's not necessarily that the, the foreman is wrong or it's not necessarily that anything that John Hattie says that we should be doing is objectionable. It's that there isn't, is that if you, if you don't have an understanding of why you're doing it and if, if all you're doing is saying, well, if I do this, this, this takes this learning outcome out of the 30 that I have to get covered in first year, then then there is that that shallowness is there. And there's also that you might tweak things thinking that that's not a problem. And in doing that, you might totally undo the good of something that was quite a good idea to do in the first place. And one example of this is, you know, Rosenstein's principles of instruction, which is which are really, really useful. And but I, one thing I have seen in the UK, which I think it hasn't come in here yet, but I think, um, hold your breath, because I think it's, it, it will be here soon, is, is that schools have Rosenshined their classes where, um, you know, this is given to teachers, this like 12 step lesson and all of the lessons must follow this. You know, you, you have to start with your little quiz and and then you do, um, you know, and then you do some worked examples and and you can follow all these steps but if you don't have a, a why as to, if you don't have an understanding as to how all of these steps tie in with the curriculum and how they tie in with learning, then you, you could follow all the steps and think you were following them perfectly, but you, there, there mightn't be the, the essence of learning mightn't be there because if, if you don't have the right content in your class, and if you're not able to be responsive to the class that's in front of you and, you know, be able to double back if you need to and stuff, oh, I need to go on to my next step now, then you're, you're losing as much as you're gaining. You are totally. Another thing I, I think the aspect of, uh, I think it's worth mentioning as well, is what is the, how have teachers received learning outcomes? What's been the impact? I mean, have teachers responded positively, negatively and so on? And just to give, we, we know the obvious example of the junior cycle, people um, with quite hostile reactions to it. And when you go to some of the training days for the JCT training days, you often hear people coming away from them, not empowered or inspired, but kind of actually feeling demeaned or 
you know, lack suddenly they're they're lacking in confidence uh, as to they feel less confident as a teacher after. And I mean, that's a bizarre sort of paradoxical result for a contradictory result to be coming out of a training session that's supposed to be in theory improving things that actually turns it the other way. The second thing is, I mean, if you think of the Irish Science Teachers Association has been very active since uh, since 2014 in terms of challenging the what they call the lack of depth of treatment in the uh, senior cycle uh, science specifications. And um, so, and they've been calling, they've quite an active campaign going on at the moment. In fact, their latest edition of the science magazine from the subject association uh, has a whole write up on the lack of depth of treatment. Now they've been on to the NCCA numerous times saying, look, previously we had the depth of treatment. We knew what, to what extent, how far we had to go with students on a particular topic. And we don't want to have to, re- you know, you hear things like we don't want to have to reinvent the wheel since when did knowledge become a dirty word? All these kind of phrases that we've been talking about since the junior cycle as well. And just just to give one or two examples, just um, like even I've noticed this in terms of uh, computer science as well. And we talked earlier on about how the, the learning outcomes can be vague. And just to give you an example of computer science. So you have this, uh, here's 211. Uh, learning outcome 211 from the computer science specification it says describe the different components within a computer and the function of those components okay now it sounds fairly straightforward like you take a computer on your desk what are the components maybe maybe it's a hard drive maybe it's a monitor or whatever right but that can go to such a level like as as if you read the the section beside us right which gives goes in like i was on the development group and we had to demand this that more more actual what do you mean there about that? We have to actually ask for that to be put in. And what it can refer to is, for example, the CPU, the ALU, registers, program counter, memory, basic electronics, voltage, current, resistors, capacitors, transistors, the operating system layers, hardware, OS, application, and user, right? Now, even any of those areas, you could go into the whole electronics of it, of the, the electronic components of a computer. You could go into the hardware aspect of it there. There's mentions the operating system levels. You can go into the amount of memory, what does the CPU do, and so on. All of these things. And if you if you're not if you're not given some kind of guide as to to what to what depth of what depth are you supposed to go? What what are students really supposed to know in this? You as a teacher are put in a very invidious position. You are now. Now, one of the one of the things that's mentioned about this is that there's a. It's claimed that these uh, learning outcomes are very precise and they give precise description of what you're supposed to know. But as you can see there, it doesn't. It doesn't give a very dis- precise description at all. But particularly for novices, right? Because it, we're always told that for students, learning outcomes helps them helps make things clearer for them. It's easier for them to understand what they're supposed to be doing, what they're supposed to be learning, right? But I'm relatively novice computer science teacher, right? And when I see a learning outcome like that, right, the one I just mentioned there, I'll just read it again, describe the different components within a computer and the functions of those components. I don't, I didn't know initially what, I had some idea about what they were talking about, but I didn't know all the different components I listed there a few minutes ago and that, that they would need to know about all that. But if you get an experienced computer science teacher or someone with, a, with an in-depth knowledge of any subject, yes, the learning outcome is useful for them, but it's not useful for a novice. It doesn't actually clarify a lot of things for a novice. And that's part of the problem with the claimed uh, transparency and, uh, and uh, clarity of learning outcomes is that, 
and it, it, it extends into teaching as well. I mean, you know, the, the, the idea that you just put students in a group and expect them to discover things about a subject, you know, just in some sort of random or unguided way, you know, it, all those kind of ideas are, are actually makes it harder for students to learn, makes it harder for teachers to teach. And my arguments going back to the science teachers and the computer science teachers and the junior science, they keep saying that the success of these programs will depend on teacher engagement. Yes. And yet they seem to do everything to ensure the hostility of teachers. Well, and it's it, just it just it just doesn't add up. I mean, if you want teachers to engage with it, yeah. then surely you should respond to some of the concerns rather than saying, oh, no, 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 this is what we want. And we don't care what you think. Just go ahead and do this. It's top down. Here you go. Off you go. Yeah. We're not we're not interested in what you have to say. I'm going to wrap up. I think gonna, if I gonna, could gonna, maybe yeah. make one point because I'm actually going to be leaving you shortly. Yes, I'm just going to, we're going to wrap up now and I'm going to give everyone one last word and let's start with you, John Jerling. But just to jump in, Mark, just for one second, what you're saying there about uh, it has gone very mechanical, hasn't it? You know, um, even the, the JCT training days that we go to, uh, it, it's almost like a robot standing in front and it could be a different person your next JCT day, but the terminology and everything is exactly the same. And even if you ask a question or question, why is this? The answer is always, let's park that here, you know, or let's say, you know, it's, and it's, it's move on from the question and move on to something. It, it's gone very, very mechanical, which is the point that they're arguing is that education of knowledge is mechanical and, and this kind of thing. And they want to move out from that. So yeah, it's, it's very strange, but look, we could talk about this all night, and this is just, I suppose, a flavor to give people a nudge in, in the direction of have a little think about this more deeply of what's happening. And we, of course, we will, we will be coming back to this on the podcast all the time, going into the various areas in more detail. We'll have Geraldine back, we'll have Kate back, we'll have Mark back. But we'll just give everybody the, the final, final word for a minute or two there, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll call it a night. But uh, Geraldine, you're, you're, you need to go. Yeah, um, so, yeah I was but, just... I'm going to join a few friends with a bit of music today is Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. So we're going to sing a few Bob Dylan songs for the evening. Very good. Very uh, good. Before I go, I would say to you, look, uh, in times of fear, history has shown us that in times of fear, education systems undergo crises. And when crises happen and when we're as humans, when we're in fear, we don't always make the right choices. And we've often, there's often been parts of our history where there's been efforts to make almost a teacher proof curriculum. In other words, make it safe, make it generic, everyone hop and skip and jumping in the same direction and take out the color, take away the autonomy of the teacher and you know get these outcomes because the economy depends on it. Our prosperity and our future sink or swim. And that's really what's going on. And, and Stephen Ball says, Teachers are either intellectuals and cultural critics, or sadly, we're thought of as just technicians. So if we're intellectual and cultural critics, we need to be able to do the thinking and we need to be able to work with our students. And the reason teachers would feel demoralized coming out of in-service is, I would feel as a researcher who has my PhD in education completed in Trinity College, 10 students graduated, uh, with true PhDs, etc., I could feel demoralized by somebody who would say to me, Geraldine, it's all worked out by evidence. The big data researchers have it all done. We don't need to hear your comments because you're only just giving us your own opinion. So in other words, if any one of us is told that, that our opinions are worthless, our, our philosophical thinking, our critical thinking, our asking why, 
that's an anti-intellectual approach to teachers. And it's also an anti-democratic approach. If we don't give the space for the teacher to have a genuine dialogue and engage with this stuff, what are we afraid of? And why are we shutting down those spaces when we really do want surely the next generation of young people to just not nip out into the world and just become obedient functionaries and do whatever they're told by anyone. Surely we want the next generation of young people to be critical thinkers till they make an effort to build a decent society in Ireland and play our part in a just global world. Absolutely. Kate, your last word. Okay, last word. I want to look at two learning outcomes as examples of learning outcomes. But before I do that, I just want to take the English CBA one as a kind of microcosm for educational reform. Um, because the, the CBA one in English is um, a presentation, it's around oral language and you know, students can, no, it doesn't have to be a presentation. It can, they can do a little drama or they can write a poem and recite it. You know, there's lots of different things you can do, but generally it's, it's usually a presentation that doesn't have to have any content from the subject domain itself. And as I was reading a bit about learning outcomes, and I think it was in something Gert Biesta wrote that he quotes an American political theorist called Murray Edelman, who writes about policy as spectacle and that this is where I think the link with the CBA one comes from is that we have a situation where there's an awful lot of thought, there's an awful lot of effort and there's a fair amount of money being invested into junior cycle. There's, there's lots of lovely publications. I think it's fantastic that, you know, we're, we're given the CPD that being able to go away with your department for a day and not have any kids and just think about what it is that you're teaching and how you think it that's brilliant but that behind all of this there there isn't the substance the substance isn't there so a bit like the CPA one it's great it can be really enjoyable can really build up kids confidence but there isn't really any substance behind it and I think that that's what is um the sad issue with the junior cycle and what I really fear is going to happen with senior cycle. As Mark said, they, you know, the depth of treatment, it's just not going to be there. And, and two um, learning outcomes, like, like one I'm just going to take from the, the junior cycle specif specification that says like use an appropriate critical vocabulary while responding to literary texts. <laughs> what is an appropriate critical vocabulary? And, and what I would appreciate as a teacher, you know, I don't want to be given a list, a checklist of, you know, they must know anaphora and they must know assonance and they must know juxtaposition. It's that I don't want them to go in and see an exam paper like what was the, it wasn't the first English exam paper, it was one of the sample ones. And in it, they lost marks if they did not know what the word enjambement meant. And I would never, with junior students, I would use the phrase run on lines. And because there's now no, and there's, there's absolutely no choice on the papers, they, they, they would have, you know, you could have had very good students now, it mightn't have made a difference to their grade, but they would have lost marks for not knowing something 
that I would never have taught at junior cycle. Um, now I teach it. Now I make a list of all of these. So I think there's kind of unintended consequences there so as to what as what has been happening. And another one I wanted to look at for the um, just from the SPHE. And I think this is a bit worrying. And this is this came up with um, with Geraldine was you know brought up in the the mental health and is about being resilient and using you know I can use my coping skills and that they're developing resilience and and this goes back to the idea of the neoliberal subject and there's there's a sociologist called Ashley Ashley Frawley and and she warns about this and and says that all of this well-being I think there's an idea that you know we're, we're balancing everything out by giving more and more well-being and actually well that that's actually the least progressive thing of all because it's not really about a genuine concern for holistic and well-being instead it is about creating the perfect neoliberal subject you know who's flexible who's resilient who can you know fend for themselves and be super independent and, and here again, we get unintended consequences because that's not what's happening. Instead, we have an, an upward spiral, um, what Frawley calls an upward spiral of demand for services that are already overstretched because what we're actually doing is uh, cultivating students' sense of vulnerability. You know, if, they, if we tell them, you need to build your resilience and you need to be your learning outcomes for today is we're going to think about coping skills and how we cope with stress the, the message that they're getting is I can't cope. The message they're getting is I'm not resilient. And and that's and that's one that's kind of one aspect that's kind of worrying about it as well. Yeah, no, absolutely yeah. it is. Yeah. Go on, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just literally just to take up directly on that point, I mean, I think this is part of the individualism uh, cultivated by a neoliberal um, political outlook and that you've mentioned there, Kate. And you only have to look at the well-being indicators to see that individualism in operation. So, like, take the one, uh, that's the one you were talking about, resilience there, uh, Kate. There's this kind of self-questionnaire. So it says, do I believe that I have the coping skills to deal with life's challenges, right? Do I, as an individual, right? So just the, the society is gone. It's not about us, society. How do we cope with a pandemic, for example? It's do I have the individual coping skills? And it's hard, like, it, it's, it, when you look at it, it's extremely political because if you take the issue of homelessness, right, and you apply resilience to homelessness, for the student in the class, you're saying to them, do I have the coping skills? Do I, have, do I believe that I have the coping skills to deal with life's challenges? Well, if your challenge is homelessness, that's not a child's fault. No, no child should ever have to develop the coping skills to deal with homelessness. So, again, I keep going back to Garpiesta, but what he argues is that political and social problems are being turned into learning problems. So now you have to learn to cope with something that you should never in any world have to cope with. Students should never have to think of, how do I cope with homelessness? Policy should be that that homelessness is eliminated. So it doesn't even arise in a child's life to have to think about how am I going to cope with this homelessness? And I agree also with that uh, cultivation of vulnerability as well, because if you keep talking about um, how how do I cope all the time, you know, 
then you're 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 almost it's, it's it can turn into a form of navel gazing, and you're always kind of internalizing things, looking into yourself, getting more and more distance a distant away from the society and the culture and the people around you, and so on. So that's there's a, there's a whole other um, podcast in that whole well-being area, right? It's a huge it's a huge area, but I would argue very pernicious in terms of it tries to take the focus off funding of say CAMs and the like and so on for really serious cases and to transfer the responsibility of coping with everything to schools and to students and to parents and everybody just just the state is saying just get this get this away from us get, I don't want to have to deal with this it's not our responsibility it's yours and 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 that's that you know so the, the idea of the welfare state is, is kind of is kind of gone in that sense right they're not completely gone but that's the direction they want to go in but just to, to finish up I just wanted to talk about you know, we're talking about curricular reform and the movement towards outcome-based uh, education. And is it the only way that it has to be, right? This, I mean, this is the thing, like, you know, is this all, there, is this, do we have to accept this if we want any sort of reform at all? And you mentioned the senior cycle coming down the tracks. Um, I, would, I would take the example of the subject computer science, right? That is, a, computer science is a very innovative subject. It develops a lot of the so-called 21st century skills that uh, they say they're looking for. But it doesn't neglect the knowledge and the skills and the all of the other things, the positive things that we've been talking about, understanding the wider world in terms of you know our algorithm. For now, Mark. For now. What? For now, it doesn't. For now. What, what do you mean? So, in terms of when they bring this outcomes-based stuff towards the yeah. leaving cert, then it certainly will lose a lot of that content, probably. It, yeah, it may do. But but the 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 argument is, I mean, we can have all the positives of a computer science subject or PE or yeah. policies in society or any of those subjects, science or whatever, without having to tie it down into a mechanical template mm. of learning outcomes, mm. you know, but they seem to be, they seem to be totally and utterly convinced that the only way they're going to get reform of the kind that they're talking about is that if they put this rigid structure around teachers and around schools and, and force them into a mechanical operation, uh, in a sort of production process and you know I, I think that's the antithesis of what we should be going along with we we want new things we want new subjects we want you know all the choice that students can have in terms of subjects we want them to develop all the knowledge and skills that they need not just you know in their narrow terms for the workplace but for the for their for the rest mm-hmm. of their life for the wider world for the knowledge and understanding of society as a whole how to engage with that society how to participate with other people how to mm. get involved in trade unions all the various sort of things that, that students should be able to do uh, and there's a there's a bad there's a kind of a struggle going on there and i think as always in these cases you've got the people who want to push education in a particular direction for the economy and and only that and people who have a more a broader view and want to take into take into account the broader view, and I think we have to be the the ones who are associated with, associated with that broader view and trying to educate people about that, trying to make people more aware of it. Because as Geraldine really said, uh, uh, you know, a lot of this isn't discussed. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we talked. I'll uh, just finish on this point. The only big debate we've had about education, apart from the the COVID thing, in, in, in recent times, is around the history curriculum, and mm-hmm. in history and it not being in the government trying to make it no longer a compulsory subject you have everything you need to know about their agenda in that Mm. they they wanted to get rid of this idea that you needed to know about your history that you needed to know about your past that you needed to understand the past to help understand the future all they were interested in was how do we use 
history as the content of the history subject as a vehicle for developing generic skills like managing myself and mm. uh, and literacy and numeracy and so on. And it really subordinates deeply rich subjects into this subordinate role of merely serving as content for these generic skills that are deemed to be so important. And I think history was eventually made compulsory again, but it took the intervention of the likes of the president, Michael D. Higgins. It was on radio shows. The History Teachers Association got involved. The ASTI was involved. A huge number of people had to put on pressure to intervene in just the debate over one subject. Now, there's nothing like that kind of a debate on the wider uh, education system. And despite the fake consultation, and it's a fake but very seriously flawed consultation on the senior cycle, that's what they're going to claim is the consultation process and the debate that was had. And they'll say, oh, the debate that was had, we had all these people, we did all this consultation, everybody agrees that this has to happen, and that's the end of the story. And there will be, unless, unless people make a debate about it, there will be no real debate on that. It'll just be this crushing consensus. Oh, yeah, this is what everybody agrees, and this is the way we're going, and we're not yeah. going to talk about it. And I think that's the real danger, and I think we need to be talking about education more and debating, as Geraldine Mooney Simi said, what is the correct route or what is the, the better route for, for uh, education for the yeah. whole of society and not just a narrow vision? No, you can, you can be, I, I agree, you can be damn sure that a lot of these consultations, uh, you know, what's, the way that's going to be marketed is that all the partners were in and we discussed this and they were moving on and here's our thing. Despite that, within those meetings, there was probably huge objections. And even when there was objections, they were told, well, this is the direction we're going, so you have to operate, as we were saying earlier on, within this alley or, or and you can't move outside it. But the marketing will be there was consultation and all these buzzwords are going to be there again. But look, um, I think it's been a very worthwhile podcast. It's probably been a bit up and down and, and a bit fragmented. But I think the, the whole point of this really is just to start that conversation, to have people thinking. I certainly have a notepad full of different people that I'm going to have to research now and different articles from from what all of you have said. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I hope that the people listening to this will be jotting down stuff as they're going along as well and go and research it as well and, and have a look. And again, we're not offering solutions here. We're just saying, have a little think about this before we, we start just all of a sudden, not, as Roy Keane would say, we're not like dead fish moving along with the, with the tide. So that we, we do need to have a, a serious think and a serious debate about this because it, it does seem that this leaving cert uh, and this kind of outcomes based or push for leaving cert is going to be on us very, very quickly. Uh, so we do need to have a serious discussion and not just teachers, not just in the trade union, but in society. Uh, people in society need to listen to this uh, who are not teachers and understand or try to understand what is going on. Uh, and we have moved from a wide uh, education system that was knowledge based in various different subject areas or areas around that people could move forward up until the age of 17, 18 so they had that good grounding and now that seems to be pulled back in again and it's all these as we said narrow outcomes with each subject effectively assessing the same thing uh, rather than the contents of, of that uh, subject so uh, listen thanks very much um, uh, for coming along uh, we will definitely get everybody back in again uh, probably zone in on specific areas of it the next time um, but this is just uh, to give people a flavor of of what is happening so thanks very much all for coming along